You're listening to the Modern People Leader Podcast. Today's episode will be a part of our People Leader Series, where we go behind the scenes with today's top HR leaders and talk to them about how they've gotten to where they're at and what they really do every day. Our guest today is Jackson Lynch, founder and president of Nighty Consulting. Quick announcement, everybody. We are going to start an MPL Weekly Digest newsletter where we'll be sharing the top three takeaways from every episode along with the full transcript. So go sign up now. If you go to the show notes, you'll see the link. And every week when a new episode drops, an email will hit your inbox. Let's say you don't have enough time to listen to the full episode that week. You can go look at the summary, read the transcript, whatever's easiest for you. But yeah, go subscribe now. Again, it's in the show notes. But um, yeah, this is now the end of my not-so-quick announcement. So without further ado, enjoy this week's show. Welcome, Jackson. How are you doing? I'm living the dream, brother. Thanks, uh, thanks so much for inviting me and let me talk to your listeners and viewers. Awesome. Awesome. Well, we have a pretty amazing conversation lined up today, but before we can get to the core discussion, we have a few traditions at the Modern People Leader, and um, we start with what we call good news stories, and it's just a chance to reflect on what's going on in our lives, anything that we're grateful for, or just you know any good news we have. So who wants to, to kick us off today? I can pick Oh, no. Ah, <laughs> Jackson, you take the baton. So I've been in Atlanta for the last several years on a on an extended assignment. And uh, over the last week, I've been able to move back home. I have three daughters. Two of them live here in Texas. And I've been able to have uh, a meal with each one of them at least three times over the last week. And I think it would be six months since I've been able to do uh, do that previously. So I'm pumped about being around my girls. Where in Texas? Down in Houston, Woodlands area. Okay, cool. So just down the road from y'all, I think. Nice. Yeah, not too far. Not too far. Well, my I'm going to go next because mine relates to my good news relates to my whereabouts, but I am actually not in Texas. Normally I am in Texas, but I am going to escape the 90 to 100 degree weather, whatever it is, wherever it's at today and the rest of the week, because my partner and I were in cool Spokane, Washington for the week. She's from the Pacific Northwest. So we're here visiting some family. We have another wedding. I think this is our fifth wedding this year. So yeah, I am not in the, uh, the scorching heat of Texas this week. It's my good news. Just make sure you go to Coeur d'Alene and have, uh, uh, have some, some dinner at the resort there. It's one of the most beautiful places in, uh, Eastern Washington. Technically. I've I've been to Coeur d'Alene just for a, a little bit, so I would love to go back. I'm not sure if that's on our agenda. Oh, I'm getting a, a head nod. My partner is is here in the room with me, so we're definitely hitting it up. So, so I am actually not in Austin this week either. Not as exciting of a location, but I'm in Dallas this week. Um, and my good news is I got to see my nephew William on Monday. I hadn't seen him in I guess like a month. And it's crazy how fast they change at his age. He's 14 months. And last month when I saw him, he could kind of hobble around and maybe take like a step or two before falling. But on Monday, he was literally running around in circles nonstop. So kind of cool to see that uh, progression. And um, it was just nice to spend some time with with him and my, my brother and my sister-in-law. So that's my good news. Awesome. So Jackson, uh, I know you've, you know, worked a lot of places, you know, you've been an HR executive for, you know, 20 plus years. You've worked at some great companies. Uh, I, I saw on your LinkedIn that you worked at PepsiCo, you've worked at Nestle, um, you had a few, uh, CHRO roles and now looks like you're, you're, you know, doing your own thing, which is awesome. So I'm curious, like what, what are some of the uh, key moments in your career um, and, you know, what does your journey look like? Yeah, it's not your typical HR story. Um, I kind of don't like people, and I'm, I'm mostly kidding about that. Uh, but early in life, I didn't know what I was going to do. I was, a, I was a radio guy, and uh, that's how I worked my way through college. Um, look better on radio than I do on video, that's for sure. 
but then I realized that those guys don't get paid very much and I'd have to live in some pretty awful places. And uh, my dad, I grew up in a business, uh, family business my grandpa had started. So I learned uh, accounting as a, as a way to kind of understand the language of business and, uh, and then worked for Boeing as an industrial engineer and a frontline manager where I made just about every mistake uh, for a line guy could make. And I, I honestly think that made me a way better HR guy uh, than any sort of professional training because the book answer and the real life answer at three o'clock in the morning on the flight line uh, is they're not the same answers. And um, having had those kind of experiences and driving trucks and, and lumping trucks throughout the Northwest, it just puts you in a different position to be able to have some authority um, in, in conversations. And so I, I think that's been helpful. I went back to graduate school after being an engineer for, for three years and, uh, did undergraduate kind of HR work with international paper, did what I think is my graduate work at PepsiCo and the Frito-Lay organization, which was light years ahead of most places when it, when it came to being a good business partner, things around diversity and inclusion in terms of understanding the business cold and worked on the operations side, the sales side, did a little bit of labor relations work, and then ultimately was on the transformation and strategy team where I got to help kind of do enterprise-wide change management, think about how to build sales compensation systems that can change the, change the game and kind of supply chain footprints that uh, many of the things that we did there fundamentally changed the company. And then I ended up going to work for Dryer's Grand Ice Cream. I got pulled over by a couple of PepsiCo colleagues, Andy User and Tony Sarsom. And I got to build that team from scratch. I think there were uh, two or three people there when I got there. After about three and a half years, we were able to, to lead the integration efforts of Dryer's Grand Ice Cream and Kraft Pizza, which is you know just over $4 billion uh, integration where we we uh, over-delivered our synergies, we delivered them early, and we had the best Orc Health scores across Nestle USA, um, which you don't normally do in those situations. And most importantly, I got to meet some of the most amazing people and, and help uh, contribute to, to some of the careers of, of some great HR professionals. Many of them today are sitting CHROs, including Rihanna Barr, who I think has been on your podcast previously. And then... Uh, Ended up doing uh, some CHRO roles and then realized um, a few about five or six years ago that there is a fundamental gap in the mid-market, small to mid-market companies for academy-trained HR people. We can't afford folks like us and companies that size, and yet they still have the same challenges. And especially as labor dynamics change and the talent market tightens up, they actually have way more to lose because they don't have the resources to be able to rely upon. And so I started my own business and 90 Consulting that really focuses in on that market and specifically as, as it goes through transitions, whether it be ownership or uh, CEOs or business strategy changes. And, and the rest has been history. We've, we've had a great time doing that. So a couple of follow-up questions. I feel like you kind of glazed over the fact that you were a radio guy. Can you tell us more about that? Sure. Country 930 KBFW. Oh, I love it. Yeah, yes. I, uh, I didn't even <laughs> like country music at the time. And I got to meet some pretty cool folks like Vince Gill and, and uh, Dolly Parton and Keith Whitley. Uh, but uh, it, 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 to me, it was, it, was a, it was a ton of fun. It was a great way to, make, to work your way through college. And uh, no one in where I went to school had any idea because no one listened to country music back that part of last century, last millennia even. But uh, yeah, it was a, it was a kick in the pants. Yeah. And where where were you? Where was this radio station based? Where, what university did you go to? I went to Western Washington University, but this was the local country music station. But I also did some work uh, in the Seattle market um, with uh, KLSY and KASB and handful of others, I think. So did some, uh, did some TV too. And, and it would quickly became clear that, that this mug looked better behind a microphone. Than <laughs> a, uh, too bad podcasting wasn't a thing back then. I'm telling you. Yeah. So I guess shifting back to the HR side of work, one thing that I've heard is that there aren't many like 
world-class HR teams. And I always hear about PepsiCo being one of those world-class teams that I think I heard it referred to as like HR as Kingmaker and how in like the early 2000s, PepsiCo was doing some great things in HR. And if you wanted to become a world-class HR practitioner, that's where you wanted to go work. So I'm curious, like how much did that experience influence your career? I mean, it sounds like, you know, what you've realized when you started your own firm is that a lot of mid-level companies need support with HR. So I'm just curious how that experience um, made an impact on you. Well, so PepsiCo broadly, if you, if you think back into the late 90s and the early 2000s, they were the ones that started thinking about separating the what's from the how's as it relates to performance management. And, and today we take that for granted, right? You know, getting from point A to point B while, while leaving a lot of dead bodies on the side of the road is not, is not good leadership. And they were the ones that started saying, not only is that, that true, but it's important to us that we, that we focus it on how we, how we deliver the leadership that, that our teams need. They did a lot of continuous improvement work in the operations team where it was about how do you drive full engagement? They were one of the first companies of any scale to, to put performance bonuses at hourly levels. And something I'm really proud of in the early 2000s, they, they trained every employee on how important it was that Frito-Lay and PepsiCo break into the, at the time we referred to the gay and lesbian because of it being important, not only from a business perspective, but also from a human perspective. Later on, Irene Rosenfeld continued that and Indra Nui, who was a leader of PepsiCo, talked about uh, passion with purpose and uh, they, they really focused in on that. So I, I think it was absolutely terrific. One of the things that I think was especially important was you never had anyone talk about a seat at the table. You didn't have this HR self-confidence problem that, that many companies and, and people candidly have, where you worry about how do I get access to, to the, that was part of the, the expectation. You needed to know the business cold. They had a very clear development model, which allowed you to see different things. If you were in sales, you were tied deep into the route design and the sales compensation world, which meant you had to understand how, how our sales processes worked. And those kind of experiences, you just don't get outside of, of places like, like PepsiCo. And it was one of the best places I ever worked and, and remain great friends with a lot of their leadership today, including Patrick McLaughlin, who's a guy I'd consider one of my mentors. That's awesome. Thanks for sharing that with us. Uh, so what's the best advice you've received in your career and what's the worst advice that you've ever received in your career? I think the best advice I, I got was to, to, to really focus on helping others to succeed and being generous with credit. Um, I wish I had learned that a little earlier in my life. I, I, I think I grew up with a chip on my shoulder and, uh, and wanted to make sure that I got credit for things that I was doing because I was working my tail off and putting in the extra effort and the discretionary effort. And what I then realized is I had folks that were moving forward faster than I was. And I, I couldn't understand why that was because in, in, my, uh, in my lizard brain, I was doing everything that they were doing, maybe even more. But as it turns out, what was different is they were being way more savvy. They were building effective business relationships. They were, they were spending time building others up and I had a, a guy pull me aside, a guy named Terry Taylor, who's uh, since retired up in the PAC Northwest, and said, look, here's, here's some feedback that you need to get about how you behave in a work environment. And it was all around lifting others up and being generous and, and assuming positive intent. And when, when that happens, it's amazing what, what you can do. And, and so I'm so grateful for that, for that insight, because it, it, for me, it was a felt change or see change in how I, how I handled things. And from that point forward, I've, I've had folks want to follow me from one job to the next. And prior to that, I, I, I don't think that there was a long list of people that wanted to do that. Worst advice, trust me. <laughs> and not because, uh, not because they didn't mean it when they said it but because oftentimes you find that folks aren't in a position to follow through on the commitments that they're making. 
or the context around has changed in such a way that you just, you, they can't. And so owning your own decisions versus relying on others and making sure that you, you take whatever steps necessary to keep as many doors open as you can, I think is super important. But, but I found myself moving cross country. I literally moved from Portland to, to rural Georgia, Portland, Oregon, to rural Georgia, back to Portland, Oregon over about 15 months because I listened to the words, trust me. And those things have long-term implications that when you're 30 years old, you, you don't even consider. Yeah, I I definitely relate to the best advice. And in fact, I received that in my career also when I was in corporate HR. The way it was positioned to me was, Stephen, you are, you're effective at your job. No, no question. But you've got to learn to bring other people along for the ride. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, my work style can get frustrated. I have a bit of a driver personality and I can get frustrated with consensus building and going through all the, the part of the process, the journey that, uh, that I, I wasn't bringing people along with me. Uh, I was too ready to get to the answer and to get it executed that I, uh, I lost the kind of be human part of everything, which, you know, is one of the reasons and, and Daniel often points this out, you know, one of my favorite core values of, of my current business, Workify, is be human. And, uh, and that's like the number one value. And so much so, I, I, I took that feedback so much so to heart. And, and it wasn't so much as taking it to heart, but when you see the results, like, oh, wow, people, you better. said, yeah, this is just a much, a much better way of, of working. There's no turning back. And so, uh, so I totally relate to that. Well, since we launched this podcast in December of 2020, we've discussed at length all the changes that are happening in the world, all the changes that are happening in the workplace. It, it seems like we can't get away from that topic. And there's good reason for that because there's a, still a lot of change, a lot of uncertainty. But we haven't talked a lot about all the changes in what it means to be a modern people leader and how the role of the modern people leader is changing. And as we were catching up and we always have kind of an initial conversation with our guests, we had a great conversation about the old days and how things have changed and where we're at today. And so I want to I want to dig into that a little bit and share some of the conversation with our, our audience. And so first, let's take a look at the topic historically. Do you think there's consistency in what is expected of a chief people officer or a CHRO? Not at all. And let's start with the fact that you couldn't have one title. Um, you don't see that other places in the organization. You don't have a, a chief financial officer have a subtitle. Uh, a CFO is a CFO, and there are certain things that you have to be to be a CFO, and you know what those are. A chief marketing officer, same thing. A chief head of sales, same thing. A chief revenue officer might be close enough to a head of sales, but you also recognize that there's the marketing that element that goes with that, clearly defined. Chief people officer, chief personnel officer, chief HR officer, VP of HR, um, senior VP of HR. What do all these things mean? Well, it depends on the business and the context and largely the CEO, um, candidly. So, Yeah. And why, why do you think that's the case? Why is there so much variability in the expectations of a people leader, you know, what we call a people leader? Because, you know, when you frame it that way, it's a very powerful way of looking at it. Like a CFO is a CFO is a CFO. And yeah, it, there's industry differences. And, but, you know, the job title, if we were to list out what is expected and what makes a strong chief financial officer, I think there would be a lot of consistency, but there is a lot of variability in, in what is expected of a people leader. And why do you think that's the case? Yeah. Well, so, so part of it, I think is the life cycle of the function and you'll have to forgive me. I'm going to be pretty direct on a couple of points here. And so hopefully that doesn't diminish your, your, your not list. at all, not at all. We want real talk. So let, let's do it. It's, it's my view that, that at, at a functional level, we still are trying to be all things to all people versus a 
uh, you know, I talk about the finance organizations a lot because they are the other large staffy organization. And a few years ago, they made the transition that that separated the the operational roles like accounting from the more strategic and impactful roles like uh, FP&A. And those two things come in underneath the chief financial officer. And you throw that in some investor relations and a handful of and some strategic planning pieces. And now you have the, the pillars that you need to have to have a CFO. And if you were to ask 10 CEOs what a CFO does and what they need to have done before they get to that job, you're going to get almost unanimity depending on what kind of company it is. Treasury being probably the only, only kind of depends, uh, depends on the on the company type thing. But we don't have that in the HR function. The average uh, head of HR, and I'll use that instead of a title, has operational roles like HRIS. They have operational roles like talent acquisition. They even think about some of the talent management roles as part of a operational thing. We are executing a process instead of really focusing on what the outcome is. And so we haven't fundamentally defined what a CHRO needs to have to be a CHRO. And it's even more important, sorry, I get, this is a hot button for me, so, so forgive me. But it even gets, gets harder as you get smaller in organizations because the reality is you need a, you don't have the, 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 the breadth of experience at that level to, to have someone who can do everything in HR as a specialist. They have to be a generalist. But then as the business continues to grow, that specialty requirement comes up. And, and so you end up losing some of the talent work and you focus it on the operational work. And, and all of a sudden, you're in this world where a, a, an HR person can be what that business needed them to be and be successful and be the top person, which works to a point. And then above that point, it is the single biggest cause of failure and why as companies grow, the first person when you get a new ownership group and brand new CEO, the first person to lose their job over half the time is the CHRO. And it has oftentimes has nothing to do with the HR person. It has a lot to do with the expectations of the incoming CEO and what they are used to the HR person doing, which might not be what you were being asked to do in your, in your previous role. Yeah, it's interesting you bring up the size component or the size kind of lens to to this topic because I've often heard, you know, we we deal in in data, in employee data, in 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 employee feedback. And, you know, they many times data points back to people issues, right? <laughs> it, it's kind of uh, kind of common sense. And when we are having conversations with the executive team in, in lieu of there being a chief people officer or, or head of, of, of HR, we will be brought in to, to do a walkthrough of the engagement data with the executive team. And so one of the things that I've heard far too often is, oh, well, you know, we're not large enough to have a, a head of HR or we're too small to really need this. And it's it I always am, am somewhat taken aback because I feel like really strong modern leaders and executives understand that a a people lead the value of a people leader is it, you know there, there's no size element you know there's no size requirement like you should hire if you can find one that fits within your organization has the experience that um, that that you need for the job like that should be an early hire you make although so many so many times i hear like oh we're too small and i think that is not the case with certainly not the case with the chief revenue officer or you know a head of sales why why do you think that's the case I'm I'm uh, I'm I'm biting my tongue. It, it, it has to do with experience, right? And so so think about the companies out there that buy and sell companies for a living, like Bain Capital being a, an example, TPG Capital, which full disclosure is a is a client of mine. Those are companies that have historically been very very successful in taking companies 
putting in good leadership teams, infusing capital if the if the good if the leadership team is sufficient from where where they start. One of the things they do, and Bain Bain is is well known for it, is they do leadership due diligence. And when they're buying a company, this isn't just let me let me know what the CEO is. They they haven't. When you buy a company, you have in the diligence process, you have an army of finance people that go through and comb through every single thing. And then after you buy the company, you look and you say, oh my gosh, there is a there, there, there are people here. Maybe we should make sure we have the right CEO. And then the CEO tends to be able to make every decision from that point forward. The problem is the CEOs in most private equity firms, there was a, a Epson Fuller study back I don't know, five or six years ago that looked and said out of 320-ish private equity portfolio companies across, I think it was 23 PE firms, 69% of, of CEOs are fired between month six and month 48 with the average being in month 27. So, so just using thick math, two thirds of CEOs are gone on average at the two-year mark. Well, if that if that is true, and if that is indicative, I've heard that it, it might be a little bit higher than that number. Think about what the impact is on multiples. Think about what the impact is on, on hold periods. The entire business thesis gets turned upside down if, if you're changing out your senior team two years into a three to five year hold. And, and then you ask, why is it that, the, that that's happening? And the answer is clearly it's either a strategy issue or it's an execution issue. And in both cases, it's a talent issue. And so, so you have these firms that go in and they look at, do I have the right talent to support the business thesis, to look at the business strategy through a talent lens and, and to go execute? So why don't all companies do that? Well, I have no idea. Yeah. The only and, thing and I can explain is they don't know any better. And so I want to, I we're going to come back to this. Uh, we're going to, I got ahead of myself. Um, okay. You know, I, it sounds like there are two kind of dimensions of this. First, there's an expectation gap or, or a, a variability, misalignment around the expectations of what a, an effective head of human resources should be, um, or what it is. And, and then there's kind of a talent issue as well that, mm -hmm. uh, that you mentioned. Um, first I want to talk about, cause I, I think so long as there there's misalignment around expectations, it's going to be very difficult to, to really, um, get consistency, both in terms of, you know, as you said earlier, HR having a seat at the table, like, what does that even mean? Why are we even having this conversation? You know, a lot of it comes down to the misalignment and focusing on the things that we shouldn't be focusing on. And so how do we start getting a better alignment around that? Well, first, I think we need to recognize that someone who is good at people operations is probably not going to be good at the strategy piece. Um, that, that certainly is, is a broad brush I just painted with. Uh, there are people who can make that transition and you have to be good at, at both um, to, to be a, a CHRO, but you, you have to be able to, to lead the operations team, uh, not necessarily be focused in on being tactical as a way of handling it. The problem is in most smaller organizations, you don't have the resources. And so you have to have someone with with hands-on the number of number of searches i've i've been contacted with we're looking for someone hands-on great what that what that means is you want someone who is good at operations and might be able to help in other areas and and so i think that's a that's step one we need to to bifurcate the operations from the talent management piece because they are uniquely different skill sets. I think number number two, some of our larger institutions that that spend a lot of time, um, you know, Sherm comes to mind, but there are others. Uh, you know, they they've turned away. I think from um, they've they've taken their certification. They've aimed it at frontline operations. And they have turned into lobbying and advocacy organizations where I think they have an opportunity to step back from a policy perspective and, and do a much better job at defining what the job is. Because 
we have accepted that different companies have different HR fundamental needs. We don't make that same assessment on the finance piece or the marketing piece. We may, we may say we need people with more of this and less of that, but we don't say some things aren't necessary. And then third, we've got to figure out a way to change out of a cost game into a return on investment game. If we can go have access to internal capital, internal investments, while being able to measure return on investment, we'll get all the money we need to do whatever it is that we need to go do because there's not another investment we can make that has a higher upside than investment in the people who are responsible for either strategy or execution. If we talk about cost, and now I need to take 10% of my cost out of the HR bucket, you know what I'm doing? I'm cutting ahead. I'm, I'm not pushing forward to get the, the, the HR analytics that I need to be able to have an actionable insights, to be able to predict outcomes and prescribe root causes or identify root causes and prescribe solutions to it. So I think those are the three things that, that, that just, they frustrate me, as you can tell, because when you have good HR people in an organization and they are relied upon, you get the world like Netflix, where you're not beholden to the financial capital because they realize their means of production go home every day. Yeah, I, I feel like there's a lot I could dig in, dig into there. But uh, I guess going back to, you know, the, the question of, of the expectations that companies have of their HR leaders with so much changing in the past couple of years. I mean, the world has drastically changed forever. It feels like the role of an HR leader has evolved more than it ever has. In, in, in your opinion, how have the expectations of a people leader changed since the pandemic? Can I go back to the previous question just briefly? Because I, yeah. I have a thought that, that as you were talking, I was listening intently to you, but I think there's a solution with how do you get boards involved in setting clear expectations of what good looks like? Mm. So if I were to go invest in a place, it's probably not even the chief executive officer. It is it is working with members of board of directors, and especially as, as we have this push to have a much more diverse uh, looking board, and we have have a much more diverse, experienced board. I think this is the opportunity for us to 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 be very very clear on what they should expect out of their talent process, and move beyond a compensation committee, and build build it out into something that's much more broad that that allows them to effectively govern the organization and hold CEOs accountable for what has been demonstrated as something that drives a business forward with, with much more rapid results than, than waiting for the, for the person who has, has a more limited skill set to, to, to succeed. So thank you for that. Question on what has changed. I, I think, God, there's been so much and it's been, it's been a rickshaw. So for all of the HR folks that are out there, that had to live through what we've had to live through for the last couple of years. We all of a sudden had to be experts on air quality measures and, and how HVAC systems work all the way through, um, you know, temperature taking stations and, and all this other stuff. But I think the, the two biggest changes, and maybe three, have been needing to, to better balance the employee advocate with the business leader, because that that's become increasingly difficult. I think it's going to continue to, to evolve, right? Most CEOs and most business leaders like to have their people close. And the more challenged the business is, the more, the more I think that is that is generally true. That hasn't been an opportunity um, you know, early on in the pandemic. But as we have moved forward, that, that's becoming increasingly balanced between how do you 
you know, how do you get the talent that you need, recognizing that not everyone is moving forward at the same same pace, while at the same time recognizing that, especially in, in underperforming organizations, there is something to be said about building cultures while you're leading remotely. And it's easier to do if you can have the drop in and have those conversations. And so, you know, just, uh, just yesterday, I think it, maybe it was even earlier today, my, my uh, hours were running together. Elon Musk is saying, hey, Tesla, we're coming back to work. Don't worry, if you want to work remotely, you can. You just have to work at least 40 hours in the office. And if you don't want to do that, no problem. There are other jobs out there for companies, and we hope that you uh, hope you become a great customer of ours in the future. And I think you're saying this a lot more eloquently than he he put it. <laughs> yeah, he said you can go pretend to work somewhere else. <laughs> <laughs> the uh, well, he can get away with some stuff that I probably can't. The but I don't I don't know a CEO that doesn't agree with it. And Tesla's Tesla's doing great. Now think about organizations that are having rapid tra- transformations that may not be going that going that great. And so I, I think there's a there is a the balance between employee advocate and business leader, I think is gonna is gonna continue to evolve because there's not a right answer to this uh, and as we go forward. I think the second is you saw a massive shift in the talent market and um, both in terms of access to talent, because if I'm a product engineer, I can live in Bozeman, Montana, if I want to. And I have, and if you don't want me to work there, I got 19 other companies that would let me go do that. And, oh, by the way, uh, you know, the, the, especially in, in technology uh, type, um, type roles, Compensation went through the absolute roof, and now all of a sudden we're in a in this situation where you have internal equity issues, you have market-based issues, you now have a stock market that is that is outside of the top three or four folks on the Nasdaq down down fifty to eighty percent depending on the company, and where if I was a product engineer and I'm making half a million dollars a year in cash and another half a million dollars a year in equity because everything has been going up and up and up and up. And now all of a sudden everything is down. How are you, what are you going to do? Are you going to reset? Are we going to have to rethink the way compensation works? I, I don't think many companies are going to be ready to go do that in an environment where, where we're quickly going into recession territory and smart companies are going to are going to take action today to best prepare themselves for where where the economy is going. And so seismic shift for the HR person who then just went from, oh my God, I can't get people to, oh my God, I have all these problems to all of a sudden now I have the the an environment where where I may have a lot more talent available to me than I, I had previously. And the problems I just solved are now unsolved again. My head's like spinning, trying to put myself in the position of a CHRO the past four or five years and having to see all of these changes happen sometimes as quick as like, you know, a month. Like I feel like all of what you're describing has transpired over the past few months. Yeah. I I mean, I guess like what we're really trying to get at is like, what, what skills should, you know, HR leaders, aspiring HR leaders be doubling down on? Like what's, what's here to stay? Like what, what expectations are here to stay from, from CEOs and boards? And then, you know, I have a follow-up question that we can, I want to ask you about how, how leaders of some of these public companies can start thinking about making it an attractive proposition for people to come work for them if they can't use things like stock options anymore. So two questions. Yeah. And and before, before Jackson, you jump in to the answer you just gave to like, how have things changed for HR leaders over the pandemic? You know, I think in my reflection, a, a company that really gets the value of people would, would include the head of HR in the, the conversation and the understanding of why we're working. Why are we here at 
insert company name, doing what we do. And that's historically mission, vision, values type work, right? And some, some organizations, you know, the smart ones are including the head of HR, right? Because that's really where it all starts from, right? Everything should be cascading, in my opinion, should, should, should always tie back to why are we here? Why are we here working? And historically, we have been very involved in the what, <laughs> you know, what are the roles? What are the descriptions and, and all the tactical things that we talked about? And that for me, how we work has been a big add to the people leaders job description. Are we, are we going to work hybrid? Are we going to work, you know, in office, you know, what, what is that? How are we working? And I always think back to Tracy Hawkins from Twitter. We had her on and she originally was in what, what I would historically call like a corporate services type of, of function, the real estate. And, you know, in their case, they heard her role evolved to, you know, like part real estate, part HR, because of what they call work, work transformation, um, you know, involves the, the physical, how, how are we going to work in physical locations, but how are we going to work just like in a broad sense? And so for me, that's a big change that's happened over the last you know few years. I don't know if you agree with that. Oh, I totally agree with that. And there is a, a part of our responsibility that, that we jokingly say, keep, keep us out of jail. But the reality is the, the work environment has evolved way faster than, than any of the laws ever, ever could. Um, and, and so there's, there's, um, there's a risk element of it. And I, I don't mean that by, by saying, how do you uh, eliminate risk, but what is the uncertainty? Because there isn't a there isn't a right answer in some of these things, right? So you have to not only be an expert on your functional skill, you not only have to be, uh, you kind of had to become an expert on an adjacent skill, uh, but you also then have to be able to, to effectively balance between competing priorities where, where you're going to get it wrong. And, and you almost have to solve for the least wrong answer, knowing that you're going to get second-guessed at some point in the, in the future. And the funny part is, HR people hate being wrong, <laughs> right? So, so you're, you're putting, uh, myself included, we don't like not knowing what the answer is and saying, this is our best guess. And, and yet that's exactly the, the roles we've had to, had to have. It, it's so funny. So uh, about a month ago, we had an offsite in Mountain View for the company I work for called Humu. And one of our executives gave an entire presentation breaking down the challenges of being an HR leader right now. And he almost explained it to a T how you've described it with other functions like finance or marketing or sales. There's a set of established best practices, proven things, or even on the legal side, there's just a right and a wrong way to do it. It's more black and white. But with HR, a lot of the times you don't know how some of these big decisions are going to land because everybody has an opinion. There aren't any established like right or wrong ways of doing things. It's constantly changing. I, I Just an observation. It, it seems, man, what a hard job. <laughs> Yeah, it sucks uh, for, for for a lot of reasons. Um, well, just just take the example of of coming back to the office. We touched on that earlier. Okay, so let's say you have an organization that is that is going through transformation. Uh, it's underperforming. It's bleeding cash, and you you need to rally and and drive forward. Okay. Do you bring people back to the office to do that? Take the take the personal health thing out of there. So just keep this in the the, the uh, work preference. So you bring people back to the office and it works. Probably not going to get a lot of upside because people are still going to not like being back in the office because they've had a touch of this freedom thing and uh, they think it works pretty well. You don't bring them back to the office and it works. It it's. Uh, you know, okay, maybe, maybe that maybe you get some credit for that because you did nothing. No, you're not going to get credit for that either. You don't bring it back to the office and it fails. Well, it's because you didn't bring it back to the office. <laughs> and you bring it back to the office and it fails. It's because you brought it back to the office. So there's there's almost no way to solve that specific question 
where there's any sort of upside from getting the answer correct. And you don't know what the right answer is going to be uh, regardless, but there's plenty of downside and, and folks just don't like, um, like being in a, in a, in the situation where you, you, you know, you're going to get the answer wrong. It's a matter of degree. And so just going back to your point on ROI, let, let's, you know, and because I think that is, you know, one of the challenges if you are selling to HR, HR is historic, notoriously difficult to sell to, right? Because, and, and I think it's a function of a problem that HR has historically always had to deal with. And that is, how do we calculate ROI on yeah. what we do? How do we calculate ROI and prove ROI on the changes that we're making? And so when you get into these conversations of, okay, we're definitely in a gray area now, yeah. you know, the, the balance of power has shifted to the employee in many ways. Like we'll see how Elon Musk, you know, that kind of approach works. I have my own beliefs. I, I'm not sure it's going to play out, you know, great for them, but we'll see. Maybe it, maybe it does. But we're definitely in a gray area where, you know, people are like, you know, some are wishing it would go back to the way it was. Some are like embracing the new. And, you know, we're dealing with, you know, one of the largest costs to the business, right? You know, the people costs, right? It's, it's not, it's got to be a top three, right? And so we're dealing with something very, very important to the business, also very, very costly. So getting the answer wrong, I'm just reflecting on the, the conversation we're having, and we're totally riffing now, by the way, guys. You know, what, you know, and we know an ROI calc is important to establish kind of the strategic this kind of strategic approach to, to, to HR. So how have you seen these conversations play out in the board conversations or, you know, with a TPG, let's say, you know, or whomever we can take names out, but knowing that, um, knowing that the stakes are high because the war for talent is fierce, knowing that, we, and also recognizing that no one knows actually what the right answer is. How do we get back to some sort of like ROI view on the, on these decisions. Yeah. So I'd have a multi-billion dollar company if I had the, uh, the, the clean answer to that one, but let me, let me try to. Well, I was hoping you had the answer and then we could go, you know, we could go side hustle and, and, and all join in on that multi-billion dollar company. Fair, fair, fair. billion. Let, 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 aim high, aim high brother. So First, let's take a look at the at the finance world. I think the HR world believes that they have clear calculations that have significant digits, five decimal, five points to the right of the decimal point. That that's hogwash. That that's not that's not the way investment decisions are made. They have ranges of outcomes. They have best cases. They have they have reasonable cases. They have worst cases. And at the end of the day, you have clear measures of what you expect to happen. And like people measures, you don't always have the after action review that comes back and, and, and measures whether or not when I wanted to add that widget to the manufacturing process, whether it, whether it paid for itself directly or indirectly. But I do have the assumption that if I do this, then this will happen and this will happen. And then I should be able to do this. And then I can do do that math. And if and if the range of outcomes is possible within acceptable tolerance, then then we go we go there. HR doesn't really do it that way. We want to have ninety four points to the right of the decimal point, and we will spend you know what what's the what's the phrase? You want to be directionally correct, not precisely wrong. We spend our lifetime trying to be precisely wrong, and so. Um, you know, I think you can, you can make some progress up front by giving yourselves the grace to have ranges of outcomes. I think you can open up the, that dialogue a little easier when you, when you uh, not only are measuring the outcome, but you're measuring assumptions upon which those outcomes are based. And that then gives you the ability to, to assess whether or not you made the right decision, but you got one of the out, one of the assumptions wrong versus uh, versus others. At at the end of the day, 
We have a responsibility to predict outcomes. If we predict outcomes, then we can start a conversation about identifying root causes and prescribing actions. We very rarely spend any time in the, in the predict outcomes segment. And so oftentimes I think as HR uh, professionals, we are a solution looking for a problem. I know I have, I have fallen uh, prey to this many times where you know what good looks like, so I'm going to go put good in. It may or may not be what good needs to be here. And there may be other things to put put uh, your investment in that's differently. And so um, for me, I think it comes back to that. I'm, I'm rambling. I shouldn't have had that extra cup of coffee, I guess. HR people need to understand the business cold. HR people need to be able to articulate a set of assumptions upon which they're basing their assessment. HR people need to be comfortable in creating a range of outcomes based upon those assumptions and being diligent about assessing whether or not those assumptions hold. And when they do that, I think you can, you can compete for investment capital with anybody inside an organization because the upside of getting it right, even if you get three wrong, the upside of getting one of them right, if it's the if you're swinging for the fences, is, is is great. Most importantly, just stop talking about what something costs. Don't leave with a cost. <laughs> so it's when almost I, like having a business case where you're presenting the set of assumptions and how you're going to measure it versus leading with like this is going to cost us a million dollars. It, it, it's, you know, I've, I've recently gone back into the dating world and it would be, it'd be a little bit like on a first date going through all of the reasons you don't want a second date. Um, chances of getting a second date might why be you, better if you, if you lean, lean in on the reasons why you might want a third. Why do you, why do you think it is that people in HR do that? Because as a marketer speaking, anytime I've think we should invest in a specific area. I approach it the way that you're describing. I don't talk about all of the possible things that could go wrong or why we shouldn't try it. So I'm curious, like, why, where does that come from? Well, first, I think, I think the best marketers are storytellers and HR people don't tell stories, right? So it comes back to, to trying to be good business partners and the way many people have been trained to be a good business partner is to manage cost. I, I just, I, I fundamentally disagree with, with that as an approach. If you, you can't save your way to glory um, as, as any good FP&A person will tell you. So I think that's, I think that's the first. We need to get way better at telling stories, which means we need to step out of the, uh, of, of our lanes a little bit. I think too, um, we don't train people in, in our function on how to influence. Neither does finance, to be fair, but but they've been pretty consistent in how they look at data and the measures. And you can ask, you know, I talk to companies all, all the time and I can ask financial questions and, and I don't have to define what, what a cash conversion cycle is. It's pretty consistent across companies. And we don't have that set of of measures and metrics in, in the HR community that allows us to build stories from it. I think that's a that's an element of it as well. Yeah, I think I can't tell you how many times we've had, you know, one of the and we've switched up our our rapid fire questions. But one of the questions we used to ask, like, what are the key metrics that that you should track that you track as a as a people person? And just reflecting and correct me if I'm wrong here, Daniel, but I'm pretty sure those metrics were all over the place. And they were either like really focus on talent acquisition or really focus on other emerging aspects of HR, like, you know, DEI or just kind of the plain vanilla type metrics. And we've, and, and that's not to, I'm not, you know, there've been some great metrics that have been put out there, but they have been highly variable. And we also, we also have heard like, ah, if there is a better way to measure these things like DEI, like some of these emerging aspects, more strategic aspects of, of human resources, I think that's another, maybe not billion dollar type of idea, but you know, 
definitely worth a lot because I think that is further evidence of a need for just a more alignment around like, what are we actually trying to accomplish as HR leaders? Yeah. And I would argue from a cultural perspective, it's all about how do you build trust? That's the measure. I don't know how to measure it, <laughs> but, but that's the measure. It, it's, it solves for, for collaboration. It, it solves for a lot of the DEI initiatives. It solves for, for broader performance, right? And if, you know, it, it's interesting. I was listening to a, an interview with Marcus Freeman, who's Notre Dame's brand new football coach. One of, who is just an incredible, incredible young man. I don't know many people who, who will replace the outgoing leader of victory, victory leader in the history of the program and have people excited about making the change. First time head coach. And, and he was asked a question in the DEI context of, of, um, you know, as an African-American head coach, how, how do you think about these things? And he said, in, in football, it's really easy. We only have one, one measure. Do I trust the guy to do his job? So there is a performance element to that, and there is a consistency element to that. And when you have both of those things, almost everything else fades, fades, to, fades away. And then you have managers, and I'm riffing on this now. Now you have managers, they call them assistant coaches, and their job is to build up two things, performance levels and consistency in those performance levels. And if you had people that focused in on, on that as a role, and you know that that at the end of the day, the assistant coach is judged as to whether or not you do your job well, there's trust involved in that. And are you listening to your coach? And are you, are you, are you uh, implementing it? And does the coach trust you as a player to be able to, to, to execute at a high level and consistently? It's trust. It's the organizational wonder drug. If we could figure out how, a way to measure that consistently and effectively, I, I think that's how you do it. Yeah, I feel like that's something that we've talked about a lot. I, I, all of these conversations are sort of like blending together in my mind. But, you know, another element of trust, like psychological safety, like, do you feel yeah. like you can trust your manager to where if you disagree with something that you're doing as a team, you can go to them and say, hey, I don't totally agree with our approach. And I think we, we should do this instead. And here's why. If you don't have that trust with your manager, if you don't have that trusting relationship, then you're never going to be able to do that. Yeah, you can talk mission, vision, values. You have an obligation to dissent. Yeah. Yeah, but how, how is that going to be received, to your point? If I don't trust that it's going to be received well, it's nice to have on the wall, but <laughs> I, almost, I almost dropped an F-bomb. Um, it's not going to happen. <laughs> uh, okay. So I think we're going a little bit over, so we're going to shift into our rapid fire questions. We'll see how rapidly we can get through them. Okay. If you could go back in time and talk to a 22 year old Jackson, what career advice would you give yourself and why? I just give, give myself the, uh, the four agreements, uh, the, the book by Reeves, uh, be impeccable with your word. Don't take things personally. Don't make assumptions and always do your best. And um, if you could, if you could apply that in in your everyday work life and personal life, I think I think my world would uh, would look very different from it does today, both in terms of relationships and and everything else. So that's what I'd do. I had never heard of four agreements before today, but this is the second time today that I'm I'm hearing about it. So well, that's a sign you should that's read. A sign, it. It's yeah, phenomenal. Okay. It'll take you 10 minutes. It, 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 maybe not, but it, it's, it's a, a very short, short book. And, it, and I, I you, don't, you read it and you're like, I don't, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, you read it and you're like, uh, yeah, that's hard. I need to do better at that. Don't take things personally. Yeah. I made a life out of me taking things personally. What, <laughs> what I, how do I do with this? But uh, it, it's, it's one of the best books. I think everyone should, we should have every kid read it. We might have a different culture in, in America. I, I agree with that. Unfortunately, Daniel, I'm not sure there's an audible for it. So you might have to actually read it, but it's there a is. very, very, there is. It, oh, there is? There oh is. man, I was going to follow up though, because it's a very, very short book. So it's not a, it's not a heavy, read. it's a heavy read, but it's not a long read, I guess I should say. Yeah. So since the pandemic, I've actually shifted to physical books over audible. I got tired of audible. I don't know why. 
maybe eventually I'll go back to, to listening to audiobooks. So next question, if you could fix any HR people problem with a magic wand, what would it be and why? Yeah, I would, uh, I would figure out a way to separate people operations from talent management, because I think that that fundamentally changes this. Uh, they have different skill sets and it fundamentally changes the way we think about our, about our function. Love it. I have a follow-up question. I don't know if we have time to dive into it, but in your opinion, when you look at the, if you want to separate HR into those two functions, or which one do you think has the advantage for getting that CHRO role? Oh, it, it, it's, it's the talent management piece. And we don't spend nearly the time that the organization needs in thinking forward about the business requirements for talent and what we do about it. We get focused in on executing talent processes and, and surveying and executing, but, but it, it, what makes it great versus, versus good chief HR officer is the ability to, to see around corners and, and that's all around the talent piece. Perfect segue into the next question. When you look around the corner to the end of 2022 and to next year, what do you see coming next for the future of work? Yeah, we talked about this just where we touched on it briefly. And look, I think there's a significant repricing of capital and good leaders today are going to be taking steps to ensure that they're best positioned over the next 18 months. And that means they're going to go and batten down the hatches mode. And I think you're going to see conversations about cash burn coming up. I had a conversation with a client earlier this week when, when I asked that question and, and, uh, you know, I'm going to make up the numbers, but but he had uh, less than two and a half months worth of cash on hand with a long cash conversion cycle, and I'm like, you need you need to actually lay people off, and and here's why this will be a good thing for you to go do. But if you don't do it today, if you have any sort of revenue impact, you're you're going to be in a uh, in a significant uh, a significant problem. I think that's going to be. Pretty epidemic. I think the the talent market that we've seen over the last two to three years is is going to change dramatically, and I think the folks that that didn't think they had to work or uh, that that they could get a job anytime they wanted to is it's going to change moving forward. I, I don't think this is a, a time to leave a job um, for for a for a flyer. I think they're going to be uh, less demand for talent. I think you're going to see significant layoffs. And then I think the equity component on how you deliver compensation is, is going to be a, a, a very, very important thing for HR people to focus in on um, uh, because you have both the inflationary pressures of compensation and the reality that any equity-based compensation is on uh, in general going to be significantly under-delivering both expectations and and recent history. So um, I think it's going to, I think HR people, we've seen a tough last couple of years. I think the next 18 months is going to be a lot harder. How's that for leaving on, on an optimistic <laughs> note? <laughs> yeah. Was- well, no, and, and to, to echo the sentiment for our audience, um, Sequoia Capital, and we, we talked about this before we started the recording, they have written these white papers, these, these PowerPoints in the last two downturns. So the 2007-2008 downturn, the housing crisis, financial meltdown, and then during the lockdown period, and they just released a new one. Go read that article, guys, because <laughs> it, uh, it provides a lot of uh, a background on the mechanics of, uh, of what you, you just walked us through, Jackson. I, I unfortunately agree. The, uh, it's going to be a different type of challenge, uh, a set of challenges the, the next year, 18 months. So, yeah. What, but right. with challenge comes opportunity. So, you, we can look at it that way also. Definitely. Oh, sorry. A bird just flew and ate a bug, as I was saying that. So, oh, no. Daniel, you can edit that out <laughs> or leave it in. <laughs> or, or leave it in. Last question Who should we bring on to the show next? If you had to pick, one or two people that you think would just be a great addition to the modern people leader and our audience would love to hear from, who would they be? 
Well, I wouldn't want him to go right after me because he'll make me look bad. But I'd bring on a guy named David Harder. He's the founder of Inspired Work. He and his partner, Paul, have started Work Skunk here recently. And it's uh, it, it, he has spent an entire lifetime uh, changing the way people have a relationship with, uh, with their work. Um, and he had a material impact on my life. He's a guy that helped uh, me garner the courage to to start my own firm. And, and so I'm very indebted to him, but he's a great human being, a great business leader, and uh, wrote a book that was prescient uh, in the workforce engagement solution that uh, came out a few years back that uh, had we read, we might be in a better position today as a result. That's who I'd bring on. Awesome. We'll have to reach out to him. All right. One word or phrase close. We all respond with a word or phrase from the episode that we want to close with. Who wants to go first? I can kick us off. Buckle up. I will go next. I'm uh, usually I'm I'm quick and I'm I'm stumped a little bit on this. I will go with uh, change. Change brings opportunity. I'm going to stick with that. Yeah, look, I've, I've had so many words here. It's hard to find uh, <laughs> a, a, problem, a lot so. of good words, though. A lot I feel of like words. I learned so much. Uh, you know, I, I just go for agreements because at the at the end of the day, I think that's what all this is is about. And let me just take a moment, if I could, to to thank you guys for inviting me on. I think what you guys are doing for the for the people leadership community is is outstanding, and to be able to make the impact that you guys have had in such a short time since starting the podcast. It's been great. And so I just, I commend you for your work and, and thank you for the, for the opportunity to join you today. Well, uh, we appreciate you joining us. This was a great conversation. Steven and I always talk about this. The chats that we have where it's like 85% rift always end up being our, our strongest episodes. And I feel always. like this episode definitely falls into that camp. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, and, and and to echo that sentiment, thank you, Jackson. The reason we've been able to uh, to do what we've done over you know the last year and a half, two years, is because we've had amazing speakers or amazing guests that have had amazing conversations with us and shared so much knowledge. So so thank you. Yeah. All right, guys. And this then you have episode. me. <laughs> Get out of here. <laughs> All right. Well, I think guys. that's a wrap. That's a wrap. Bye, guys. If you're still listening, we've got a big favor to ask and we'll give you a little something in return. So we're trying to grow the show and um, we can't do it without you. So we thought of a little way of incentivizing you to, to help out. So if you share a quote from an NPL episode on LinkedIn and tag us in the post, we'll send you a $20 Amazon gift card and who knows, maybe we'll think of ways of incorporating you into a future episode, do something fun with it. But yeah, getting to hang out with our guests and you know sharing their knowledge with you is our favorite part of each week. And we want to invite more people to the party. So um, thanks. Thanks in advance for, for helping us grow the MPL family. And as always, thanks for listening.